Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife Trauma Edition. This is our team's third podcast, and we are excited to continue to share our expertise in trauma with you. My name is Marcy Feynman, and I am a trauma and acute care surgeon in Baltimore, Maryland, as well as the General Surgery Residency Program Director at Sinai Hospital. I am joined, as always, by Dr. David Sigmund, PGY4 at the University of Illinois at Chicago and education guru, as well as Dr. Elliot Hout, trauma surgeon extraordinaire from Johns Hopkins and past president of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Together, we will be your hosts in this episode as we discuss best practices in liver trauma. David, why don't you give us a case to start us off? All right. Thank you, as always, for that great intro, Marcy. Uh, we're going to start with our case here. So uh, you get a code yellow, an activation in your trauma bay, uh, and they tell you that it's a 23-year-old gentleman. On arrival, he's able to tell you that he has no past medical history, no past surgical history. Uh, on your primary survey, you find a right upper quadrant uh, gunshot wound, and that's really the only injury you find uh, or other problem that you find on your primary survey. The patient's stable at this time, and a secondary survey fails to find anything else. Uh, an x-ray confirms there's no retained bullet, just a through-and-through -through right upper quadrant gunshot wound. Uh, the emergency resident who's on your team for this particular rotation is wondering if he should grab the uh, ultrasound scanner for a FAST. Uh, what do you think about that, Elliot? I love the idea of FAST in this patient. It's actually probably even more important than that x-ray that I heard about. Um, the benefit of the FAST is it's going to tell you, you know, is there blood uh, in the pericardium or in the abdomen, or I would do an E-FAST, extended FAST to look at the lungs as well for hemonumothorax. The real important reason I think the FAST is helpful is it helps you calculate this ABC score. Uh, the ABC score is a four-point score that looks at and helps us predict who needs massive transfusion protocol. Uh, if you get to two points or more, that patient is going to likely be needing uh, massive transfusion. This patient has one point for penetrating trauma. A, fa a positive FAST would give him a second point, even if he doesn't have a significantly elevated heart rate or low blood pressure. Uh, okay, so now um, I, I'm interested to hear what the FAST is, but David, I've got a couple questions for you. The question sure. for you, the, the general one is, who's going to CAT scan um, once we get this diagnosis or once we get this uh, patient uh, decided upon? Once we get the FAST, um, okay, you've told me he's stable. Say his FAST is negative. Can he go to CAT scan or are we going to benefit there? Yeah, I think then absolutely. If he's stable with a negative fast um, with this type of injury, the next thing to do would be to take him to the CAT scanner and see, you know, what type of injury you're dealing with. Okay, so what if we modify it a little bit? He's that same hemodynamic stability, uh, but his fast is positive in the right upper quadrant. There's blood. Yeah, I, I think the key branch point, again, to kind of reinforce here is that this patient is stable. So even with a positive fast, you have time to get him to the CT scanner to better delineate your injury. Uh, so you can plan what type of management you want to engage in. Uh, and I would agree with that 100%. So now, what about if he's unstable? He changes and all of a sudden he's unstable. Now, what are we doing? Uh, I've always been told the best place to resuscitate anyone is in the OR. Um, so if you have an unstable patient, you need to kind of unfortunately proceed without imaging uh, and get in there and see if you can fix the problem. I would agree with that. And I would say that's a really key takeaway. Unstable patients should not be going to CAT scan. All right. So getting back to our patient, uh, this patient does happen to have a positive fast, but as we mentioned, he's stable. 
they get to the CT scan and they see a grade four liver laceration. Uh, I know I've always struggled with the grading system, uh, but I believe Marcy is here to, to kind of uh, reinforce it for me and the rest of our listeners. Well, thankfully, David, you can always look it up. So it's not <laughs> something that you ever have to memorize, but the AAST grading system is the most common one that we use for any solid organ injury, and they're specific to each organ. Uh, remember that the grades are one through five, with, with one being the least severe and five being extremely severe, right? And the grades are based essentially on subcapsular hematomas, as well as any parenchymal injury, right? So grade one has a small subcapsular hematoma less than about 10% or a parenchymal lack of like less than one centimeter. Grade two, you're now at like 10 to 50% of subcapsular hematoma surface area, which is a pretty significant range, um, or an intraparenchymal hematoma less than 10 centimeters in diameter, or an actual laceration that they can see that's one to three centimeters in depth. Okay. Remember that ones and twos, generally these patients are pretty stable, almost never require any specific intervention. But when you get to grades three and above, the intervention need uh, grows for sure. Um, grade threes, now we're talking lacerations greater than three centimeters in depth, um, plus any inner injury in the presence of vascular injury or active bleeding that's contained within the liver parenchyma. So this is when they talk about seeing a blush on CT. Um, that's within the parenchyma, that makes you a grade three. The difference between that and grade four, they now see a blush that extends beyond the liver parenchyma into the peritoneum. So there's free flow of blood into the belly, right? Or parenchymal disruption of 25 to 75% of a hepatic lobe, okay? Those are very sick patients generally, and those are grade four. Um, grade five, I mean, cross your fingers and pray for sure. You now have disruption of greater than 75% of a hepatic lobe um, or something right down the middle that involves the retrohepatic cava, major hepatic veins. Um, you're going to want to phone some friends if you find yourself in that situation. So again, AAST is the place to look at for this. You do not have to memorize it unless you're really close to the app site, in which case you might want to. Um, but for practical purposes, in our patient here, if we're talking grade four, um, you should have a really high suspicion that he may decompensate and need some kind of intervention. Um, you know, there used to be a grade six in previous iterations of the grading system, which was uh, hepatic avulsion, but that grade has been taken out of the 2018 revisions essentially because uh, you almost never see it. All, the, all of those patients tend to die before they make it to the hospital and certainly would not be in a CT scanner. So now the question really is, what do we do with this information? We have our stable patient that had a positive fast and a grade four liver laceration that we just found on imaging. Um, you know, David, I know that we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Do you have any specific questions about how to make your decisions going forward yeah. from here? Yeah. And I think before we get back to our case, it'd be nice just to kind of maybe cover some of what the, and, and how the grading applies. Uh, and, you know, so I would ask Elliot, um, maybe about a few just kind of theoretical cases. So if we have a patient with a 20% disruption of his liver, but a no active blush seen on the CT scan, how might you manage that person? So I think that one's a, a relatively straightforward and people would agree that is a patient who would most likely be going or excuse me, undergoing uh, selective non-operative management. So that patient would not go directly to the operating room. They'd be admitted, observed, 
And we would go down that pathway and hopefully never need an operation for this. I think that makes a lot of sense. What, what if they have a slightly greater disruption, say around 60%, but you're still not really seeing any active blush uh, on that CT? So that's this patient with a grade four liver, like we just talked about. Um, and the hemodynamically stable patient uh, that has that with no blush, I would still send them for uh, angiogram with interventional radiology. Sometimes you're going to have to push them really hard. They're not actively bleeding. You don't see the blush, but you know, they bled, they have a significant injury and I would push for angioembolization in that patient. And what if they had active blush at that point, you know, or is it changing your management at all? Still not going to the operating room, assuming they're stable, but I think you have a little bit of a stronger argument to get your interventional radiology colleagues uh, to do an angioembolization in those patients. Uh, and then we've kind of already mentioned this, but you know, repetition is the key to adult learning, as we like to say here on Behind the Knife. What if they had that 60% disruption, but now they're unstable? Uh, unstable patients belong in the operating room. So this is the kind of patient that uh, is going to get massive transfusion protocol activated as soon as possible call the operating room or coming up soon and tell them ahead of time what you're going to need, which is a big deal operation. Uh, I think that was a really good review of decision-making. And let's go back to our patient now who came in stable, isolated gunshot wound, fast positive. So we took him to the CAT scanner because he was stable and we found this grade four liver laceration. Um, and it sounds like from your prior discussion, our plan would be interventional radiology, uh, but let's assume that while interventional radiology is coming in and getting their setup, your patient now decompensates and he is unstable and his blood pressure is 70 over 30. And we do the things that Elliot just mentioned and activate our massive transfusion protocol and give him TXA. And now we decide to go to the OR because that's definitely the better place for this patient. Uh, David, how do we start? Let's say we get up to the OR uh, this is going to be a big deal and big surgery. What's our plan? Sure. You know, trauma is always moving at this frenetic pace and it's easy to get caught up thinking, what am I going to do about the liver? Uh, but I think it's important to remember there's a lot of things to do beforehand as you're heading up there. We've already mentioned MTP protocol. You want to activate that right away uh, in a patient who is unstable with a significant liver injury. Um, when you get to the OR, you want to prep them all the way from neck to knees. Um, you know, the, the more access you have, the better. Um, speaking of access, vascular access is obviously a key thing. Um, I think something to remember is this patient may have a significant IVC injury. So if you are giving resuscitation inferiorly, say through the femorals, um, everything you're giving might just be coming right out that IVC injury. Uh, even without an IVC injury, a major liver injury resuscitating from below, you know, potentially you're losing a lot of that resuscitation. Uh, so you really want to try to get access somewhere above the diaphragm. When you're ready to make your incision, you better have the suction ready. You're definitely going to need that. Um, and, you know, despite this being a liver problem, you're going to pack all four quadrants and you're also going to make a point of sandwiching the liver. Um, for those people unfamiliar, there's some great pictures in Top Knife, uh, which is one of the better trauma surgery books out there, uh, showing that you can kind of just push the liver together with pressure from your packing and use that to limit the bleeding. Uh, and really, you kind of want to do all this stuff at once to give your anesthesia team and your massive transfusion protocol some time to hopefully catch up and resuscitate the patient and make them a little bit more stable for this big surgery you're about to attempt. You know, David, you mentioned making sure you have your suction ready. And I, as a point in all of my trauma X-laps, always make sure they have two suctions set up. I want Absolutely. one with a pool suction and one with a yank hour. And I'm curious if either you or Elliot um, have any um, experience with using cell saver, because these patients may be 
good cell saver patients, potentially? Hey, so I'll take that one. I think the answer was, you know, 20 years ago, we used cell saver um, and we thought it was great. But now with uh, this balanced resuscitation, we've been using less and less overall. I think now in the COVID era with the the very hyper acute blood shortage, um, where we're really running out uh, of blood products, cell saver is a great idea, especially for a patient like this, where you know it's an isolated liver injury, you know there's going to be a lot of bleeding. I think that's a great idea. Thanks for bringing it up, Marcy. Yeah. And okay, so we know this guy's got a horrible liver injury, right? We thankfully had our CT scan to guide us. Um, and David, you left us off as everything being packed, right? We've packed all four quadrants and we've smushed our liver in a liver sandwich. How we're do you... Our, yeah, we're, we're letting our anesthesiologists and our perfusionists catch up. Um, but you know, once, once you get there or once the patient's about as stable as they're going to go, now you need to tackle this liver injury. Uh, so I might throw it back to you, Marcy, what, what would be the first thing you consider? You look at this liver, it's got a big injury, maybe some divitalized tissue. Uh, what's, what would be the first steps in your approach? Yeah. So for our more junior listeners, remember, we always want to look at the area of injury last. So we're going to unpack our abdomen, leaving the right upper quadrant for last. Um, But eventually, no matter how scary it is, we do need to look at it. So once we remove our packs, we kind of take stock of what our liver looks like. Anything that's devitalized needs to be removed. Okay. It's just going to become necrotic and will not heal and become a nidus for infection. Um, So we do this. with cautery or bluntly, depending on how devitalized and how messy this tissue is. Just as a plug and a reminder, this is one of the highest RVU surgeries that we do, uh, debridement of the liver. So make sure it's dictated well in the operative report. Um, And then once all that tissue's out, we can actually see the extent of the injury and what it is. And we have a few ways to tackle taking care of the actual bleeding. So Elliot, do you have some favorites, some go-to moves? Yeah, there's a bunch of different stuff that we can do to stop bleeding the liver. Um, so the first is just packing, and that can be with uh, regular laparotomy sponges uh, or, or more likely these days with some hemostatic agents like quick clot as an example. If you pack that on the cut surface or injured surface of the liver, that will really help control the bleeding from there. That's certainly one option. Um, there's also this idea of direct ligation of vessels that you find. So the liver's cracked open and you see bleeding from the edge. Uh, these are not named vessels necessarily, but they're, uh, they're definitely still bleeding. And you can take a, you know, a thiovicryl or a proline and just tie them off, ligate them, and stop the bleeding from the edge with direct ligation of those vessels. Um, I think there's a lot of energy devices that are out there. Uh, my personal favorite is the argon beam. You can put a little surgicel over the liver edge and then just argon beam onto the surgicel. It attaches the surgicel to the liver edge and stops the bleeding. It's a nice little trick. Um, so energy devices are certainly helpful in that regard. Other people use the CUSA. Uh, those are kind of the, the some options for uh, bleeding control. The other thing I like, which is uh, very uncommonly needed, but is a really nice uh, uh, maneuver to be able to use is a balloon tamponade device. Uh, uh, There's some great pictures of this in the ADAM course book, the Advanced Trauma Operative Management put on by the American College of Surgeons. So if you don't know what I'm talking about and you need a picture to see it, that's where to look. You basically take a Penrose uh, drain and then you put a red rubber catheter into the middle of it and tie some sutures at either end. 
And you can then take this floppy thing, slide it through a hole in the liver. This is great for penetrating trauma with a, imagine a gunshot wound through the meat of the right lobe of the liver, slide it, this through there and then inflate it uh, with saline. And what it does is it tamponades any bleeding along the inside of that hole to temporarily stop the bleeding there so you can do other stuff. Um, so you can then uh, leave that up. You can send the patient to angiogram with that in place. You can leave it in for a couple of days and do damage control. That balloon, uh, we don't use it often, but we certainly have saved people's lives with that technique. Um, so those are some of the direct bleeding things that I like to do. Uh, Marcy, I hope you could maybe explain to us about the Pringle maneuver. It's something people hear about all the time. What is it? How do you do it? And what does it tell you? Yeah, the Pringle um, is a great adjunct. And especially if all the things you were talking about don't work uh, and you still have so much bleeding that you really can't take stock so well of what your injuries are, uh, the Pringle is going to be your friend. And essentially, the the easiest way to think about it is that you are clamping the hepatoduodenal ligament, right? You have three structures in there, your common bile duct, your hepatic artery, and your portal vein. And what we're really trying to do is decrease the hepatic arterial bleeding. Um, added benefit of decreasing the portal venous flow as well, but there's not nearly as much pressure from there. Um, some people do this directly just with a vascular clamp or even with your fingers if it's a temporary thing. Um, otherwise, you can put a penrose or an umbilical tape around it uh, and tighten that down. You don't want to leave this for more than maybe 30 minutes at a time. Um, but it's very helpful to decrease flow through the liver. Now, if you do that and you still have um, an incredible amount of bleeding, you should be very scary. And that's the time to phone a friend because at that point, uh, you either have major hepatic venous injuries or a retrohepatic uh, cable injury. Um, and that's the time to get help whether it's uh, surgical oncology, hepatobiliary, transplant, whatever your resources are, use them. Um, and then ideally, once we get control of this bleeding, we need a plan. So what's the plan next, Elliot? Um, so then I think the plan is, the first question is, um, have you done all the surgery you need to do? And what are the patient's hemodynamics like? If you've packed their liver, you've put some quick clot, uh, and it's still bleeding and they're super sick, you might be thinking damage control. If you've just done a little bit of argon or a couple of sutures and everything looks okay and they're hemodynamically doing well, hopefully you're going to try to close those patients. So I think that's really the big first branch point is am I closing an operation number one or, or am I closing and it's the only operation or is this a temporary closure for damage control surgery coming back later for uh, a kind of a next step? So I think that it's a rel it's often a relatively easy decision point. Um, I would say these big, bad grade four injuries, most of the time are getting damage control. You're operating because they're sick, they're hypotensive, they're getting MTP, et cetera. So that pathway looks like we're going to repack the liver. Uh, we're going to do damage control with some sort of temporary closure. They may have that liver balloon tamponade I told you about. Um, and we're going to send them down the pathway for damage control. Uh, all of those patients in my hands go get interventional radiology. And there's definitely some data that says, even if you've temporized it uh, in the operating room for stage one of damage control, 
you still want to send those patients all for IR. Ideally, you can send them operating room to interventional radiology and then to the ICU if you can figure that out. Um, so that's the damage control pathway up front usually. I was going to say, I do the same thing. I think interventional radiology as an adjunct um, after your initial surgery is really important. And I was just going to say as a reminder, if you're closing at that first operation, please remember to drain this because you're going to want to know what's going on in there. And the drain is uh, a window into the abdomen uh, after this type of surgery. So Marcy, I was going to ask you for the follow-up. So we both do the same thing. Uh, they, they're in the ICU. They've had their resuscitation and you're going to bring them back. Just walk us through what that looks like. Sure. So now at least hopefully they are warm and no longer coagulopathic or acidotic. We go back to the OR, you take out your abthera or whatever temporary abdominal closure device you've used. Um, and we're looking around again. Essentially, you do want to relook at everything, make sure you didn't miss any injuries from the first time, right? Rerun the bowel, all of that. Uh, then we're looking at our liver. If we left something in there that can't stay permanently, right? Things like surgicel is fine, but if we left quick clot in there, that's not something that can stay. Uh, so we want to take either our packs out or whatever we left in there out uh, and see if we're hemostatic. And, um, you know, hopefully we are. Um, if you're not, you can redo the things that we talked about earlier. Um, and repack if you need to. But the majority of the time, hemostasis is now uh, obtained, which is great. So now we have to decide whether or not to close the patient. Um, if they're stable and there's no more injury that needs to be dealt with, now is the time to close. And for the love of God, please take out the fucking gallbladder when you're there. You had a major liver injury. You don't want to go back for some gallbladder pathology later. Um, and as you're doing that, actually, you can use your little cystic duct and do an air cholangiogram. So to see if the, you know, chances are that you may get a bio leak down the line. So you can insert an angiocath and inject air into the bile duct to make sure you clamp distally. So the air now goes up into the liver. And if you see bubbles coming out through the liver parenchyma, you still have little bile tributaries that are open. Um, and that's okay. That's why we leave drains. Lots and lots of drains. Drains are our friend. Do not forget the drains. Um, and then after the drains and you're all washed out, then you can close. And we go back to the ICU um, to finish taking care of this patient. I'll just and add on about that air cholangiogram. That uh, it's a trip, trick I learned from some of the liver transplant surgeons. And you can sit there and put in sutures into all these little tributaries to decrease the amount of the bile that leaks. So the benefit of it is it's not just diagnostic. It can help you drive your therapy and put in a bunch of little stitches wherever it's leaking a bunch. It's a very cool option. Those are all great points, Elliot and Marcy. Um, you know, it's, it's great to talk about ways to control damage uh, and get the patient out of the OR as quickly as possible. Um, but, you know, what about kind of uh, more aggressive options for those tough cases. Would you ever consider resecting uh, any of the liver to kind of control this type of injury? Oh, that's a good point. And I'm sorry I didn't mention that in the talk earlier. You can definitely do uh, formal or informal resections, right? If part of the liver is just kind of hanging off, you can certainly use staplers to transect that. Or if the injury is bad enough, 
um, on your take back, if the patient is uh, stable, you can do a formal left or right hepatectomy as well. All right. Well, you know, as always, it's always fascinating uh, to hear from two experts on the operative management. Uh, but I think as we all know in trauma, operative management is really only uh, part of the story. Eventually, these patients come out of the OR, they go to the ICU, there's still a lot of work to do, um, a lot of work in management, and also in driving care forward, things like uh, VTE prophylaxis, ambulation, what labs to order, um, you know, what, what would be the ideal way to handle our friend who is unstable, uh, underwent surgery, and, and now he's stable, but he's back in the ICU? So I, I would start with, okay, the ICU, typical post-op resuscitation, damage control, I'll leave all that stuff alone for a minute, because that's kind of the standard for everybody. The couple of things you asked about that I think are really important are, number one, VTE prophylaxis early is safe and effective in patients with solid organ injury. Whether they get an operation or not, give them their early anoxaparin. It helps prevent their DVT and there is no increased risk in bleeding. So that's the VTE piece. We used to say, oh, we're not going to let people ambulate because they had a grade three, four, whatever liver. That has really gone away. And now early ambulation, there's really no limitation, assuming they have no other reasons not to be ambulating, that they can't get up and move around. That idea of let them sit for days on end and let their liver heal is not a thing anymore. And then I think frequent labs looking for complications, um, you know, watch their bilirubin, watch their hemoglobin, are they bleeding? What's their white count, et cetera. And then especially in the patient who's been managed non-operatively, early re-CT scan is going to be the window into the soul because you don't have a, a drain to follow. You can't be watching the drain and all of a sudden see it pick up a ton of bile. If you're going to look for a big bile leak, you're going to have to get a CAT scan on them. So I think those are some of the general things about post-operative or even non-operative care in patients with liver injury to remember. Elliot, you mentioned, you know, complications and stuff, and I think it's definitely worth talking about them and that CAT scans really help guide that. Didn't you do a video fairly recently that talked about some of that stuff? Uh, I did. I'll give a little shameless plug for a video. It's one of these three minute consults. Uh, you can find it on the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery website. Uh, I was the junior faculty member interviewing Grace Rizicki, who's a past WAST president. And I walked her through a case and asked her a bunch of questions of how she would manage it. Um, and we talked a lot about some of these complications and showed a bunch of video and uh, images. So it's a, it's a great place to take a look for some extra answers along with the visual part as well. Awesome. Um, David, I know that you, um, you have some complications that really like stick out in your mind as being things to watch for. What would you recommend our listeners especially take home from uh, complications? Sure. And, and I think a, a big one for me, um, especially if, if, you know, I know we just finished with the ad site, but, uh, you know, for the rest of us, it comes around once a year, unfortunately. And uh, one of the questions they love to ask is uh, how to manage hemobilia. So you're going to have a patient that has some sort of blunt liver injury overall does well, um, or maybe even penetrating, but on the ab side, it's almost always blunt. Um, and they typically do well. And all of a sudden they have some sudden onset hematemesis. You get a scope, you don't see an ulcer or anything like that, but you do see blood coming from the ampulla. Um, and they're always going to try to trick you to do some sort of scope based intervention or something like that. They're really going to try to bury the lead about this being related to that liver injury. Um, but you should recognize that you now have, um, you know, a, a communication between a vascular structure and your gallbladder, um, and that's causing this hemobilia. 
And the treatment for this is CTA and then angioembolization. It's one of those things they try to trick you to do operative management, but you really need an angio. Um, you yeah. know, Marcy, I'd throw it right back to you. What about, what are some other complications we should be worried about uh, in this type of patient population? Yeah, similarly, pseudoaneurysms are kind of a big deal and they can lead to these things like hemobilia. The only way that you'll really see them is through uh, re-imaging or you'll see a hemoglobin drop potentially, patients get a little tachycardic, um, all the things you would normally expect when a patient is bleeding. But re-image early, uh, you want a, the CTA is the key for this. But anytime you're really going to image the liver, especially after injury, you do want multi-phase scans. You know, They can also show you things like biomas or abscesses. You can see hepatic necrosis because that part of the liver won't light up. These patients are almost always febrile with right upper quadrant pain. Um, so following the drain output, as Elliot mentioned earlier, is really necessary, right? If your drain output is 500 cc's a day every day and looks like bile, what are you worried about, David? I think we're worried about a bile leak, and that's going to be one of our more common complications in this. Uh, you know, uh, where I work, we call uh, a drain a poor man's CT because it gives you a look into the abdomen, um, similar to a, to a CT, but without quite all the effort. Um, other adjuncts that are super useful are going to be HIDA scans. HIDA can show you a biliary leak, although it can be somewhat some nonspecific sometimes. Uh, an ERCP is a great way to illustrate your ductal anatomy uh, and see if you have any significant leakage. Speaking of ERCP, beautiful thing about this modality is it is not just diagnostic, but it's also potentially therapeutic. Uh, if you do diagnose a significant bile leak coming from that liver surface, you can do interventions through your ERCP to kind of decrease the pressure across that system. Um, you can do a sphincterotomy. You can stand across the sphincter. And what that does is it really uh, reduces the bile flow through your injury, uh, potentially giving it a chance to heal on its own. Um, we've kind of really been talking about complications in the setting of an, uh, an operative patient. Uh, Elliot, is there anything you do differently for kind of a, a non-operative patient? Sure, you know, so they, think they probably won't have a drain. Yeah, I think the non-operative patients, I think the biggest difference is they don't have that drain. And we've already talked about the importance of a drain. Um, so if you don't have a drain to follow, that's where you have to be really, really careful to watch the uh, partly physical exam. Is their abdomen getting bigger and bigger? Do they have a bunch of bile in their abdomen? Uh, obviously, that's not the only diagnostic test. That's the kind of patient who's going to go for a CAT scan like Marcy just talked about. And that early CAT scan repeat is going to help you figure it out. You want it with IV contrast to look for the arterial issues. Or do they have a blush? Do they have a pseudoaneurysm? Are they actively bleeding, et cetera? That's the, the arterial phase. But you also really need to look at, do they have a big bioloma within the liver that might need a drain? Or do they have bilious ascites? So bilious ascites might be something that you could manage with a drain by radiology. But there's also times that we will operate on those patients, put in a laparoscope, the bleeding has stopped, you're only there to drain the bile from all throughout the abdomen. You wash it out, you put a couple drains in, and then now you have a post-operative drain and you haven't really affected the bleeding or, or don't have to worry about the bleeding liver so much. So I think it is different in the patients who go down that selective non-operative management. Um, the other thing to remember is just because you didn't operate on day one doesn't mean they don't need a, an operation on day two or five or whatever, right? So if they're actively bleeding or uh, some other issue, they might need uh, a, an operation for bleeding control, an operation for resection of a, you know, a dead lobe of the liver, or like we just talked about for draining your bile. One more good tidbit to remember, especially for the abscite is, 
in patients with these major liver injuries, you have to check their FOS level because it will drop as the liver is trying to regenerate and you really, really need to replete it. Um, so I guess the real question is, David, after this kind of short phase follow-up CAT scans, what about um, any other delayed CAT scans? Is there a benefit to doing those in any of these patients? Sure. I, I don't think there's a benefit in doing indiscriminate scans, um, but you know, certainly, and particularly for your non-op patients, then you should have a low suspicion or excuse me, a high suspicion uh, and a low kind of index to go ahead and order a scan to look at any of this other pathology, particularly if you have a significant change uh, in condition of your patient, you know, sudden onset pain, uh, significant change in labs, you know, your next step is probably going to be to go to a delayed scan pretty quickly. Okay. I think that completes like the meat of our presentation and all of our substance. I think we should really end with some quick hits. Let's go most important things to take home. Um, David, first ones to you, where do unstable patients go? Well, you certainly don't send them to the CT scanner. They're either going to be going to angio or more likely the operating room. Uh, Elliot, you know, we talked about this grading system. Um, is there any kind of significant breakpoint in the grading system in terms of outcomes? Absolutely. I think the first thing is look it up if you don't remember. And the second takeaway is three and above start to be the really big problems. And the four and the fives are really the severe injuries. You got to know how to manage those. Marcy, uh, the question for you is when do you operate versus when don't you? What do you really use to help you decide? Oh, clinical judgment is key, but it's really stability and not stability. We operate on patients and not CT scans. So the CT scan is super helpful but you need to take your CT scan, the patient presentation and clinical judgment and put it together. So as we mentioned before, unstable patients go to the OR. Stable patients can go to IR or we can watch them, but don't operate only on a CAT scan. Uh, David, when we get to the OR, let's say you make your incision, what's the most important first step? Sure, I think you always got to remember to pack you pack all four quadrants, um, but then you also need to remember for the liver, you're going to make that famous liver sandwich uh, to try and kind of close up whatever that massive injury is. And there's some great pictures uh, in the top knife book or the Adam book, as we referenced earlier, that can really kind of help you uh, understand what we mean here with this technique. Uh, Elliot, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about this, but if you run into problems, you know, uh, like bleeding after a Pringle or something like that, what would be your next step in managing that injury? So I think the first thing to remember is call for help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to call other experts in the field. Um, and I have a case where I called my liver transplant surgeon to help me, and it made all the difference in the world. At your place, it might be a liver transplant surgeon, a surgical oncologist who does liver resection, hepatobiliary surgeon. Know who are the slick surgeons who are going to help get you out of a bind. It also might be one of your senior trauma surgeons as well. So know who's available uh, at your institution that you can phone a friend. So Marcy, tell me about interventional radiology. What can they do for you? Um, well, they can either help with our selective non-op management by doing angios and embolizing uh, either bleeders or potential bleeders early. They can be an adjunct to an operation where you can go from the OR to IR to 
embolize after we've temporized bleeding, or they can help with kind of longer-term complications. As you mentioned, biomas may need drains placed, uh, and they can help with that as well. David, what do you think the most important take-home to your uh, early post-op care is? Sure. So I think like we mentioned before and just want to reinforce it, you know, these wounds can be very, injuries can be very scary, a lot of bleeding, a lot of suctioning, a lot of cell saver. Um, but you need to remember that you're trying to drive this patient's care forward afterwards and early mobilization, early VTE prophylaxis um, is, you know, something you can really do to, to benefit these patients. You don't just need to hold it um, for, for no reason. Uh, speaking of post-operative management, you know, we talked a lot about the delayed complications that can come. Uh, what would you have to say about those, Elliot? I think be prepared. Patients with grades four and five liver injury, they're going to have complications and that's okay. You need to be ready for them. You need to be uh, looking out for them very closely. You need to be getting routine CAT scans and you need to be watching their drains and their hemoglobin so that you find these complications, whether they are hemobilia, pseudoaneurysms, biloma, abscesses, bioleaks, et cetera. You find them early and manage them early. So, uh, Marcy, uh, we found a complication. When is GI going to help you? Oh, GI is most helpful when we're in need of an ERCP to help decrease any bile leaking. As was mentioned before, sphincterotomy and or stenting of the bile duct can decrease pressure through the whole system and allow the liver to heal. Um, And I think that's their major utility. Also remember that an upper GI bleed after a major liver injury, more likely than not, is a vascular problem and not a GI problem. Elliot, what about routine scans um, for like high-grade livers? Do you do them? Do you not do them for uh, later I think on? My, my practice has actually changed. I'm doing more of these routine scans for, for the four and above. I think there's some literature now that says everybody with a liver grade four or above injury should get a delayed scan looking for a pseudoaneurysm. You'd rather find it on a screening CT scan then after the pseudoaneurysm is ruptured, their hemoglobin is five and they're hypotensive because then you've missed your window potentially for interventional radiology. So get their CAT scans. If they've got a pseudoaneurysm, have your interventional radiology colleagues coil, embolize, whatever they're going to do to prevent that from rupturing and bleeding. Perfect. Well, we've covered a ton of ground today. Um, and for even more information, please check out our show notes and references. Uh, We thank you all for listening and don't forget to go out and dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.